All right, here we are in the book of Acts, the passage that John just led us in reading. We're going to be looking at a few different verses from that long uh, passage that we read together. But as we, as we enter into our, our teaching here today, I want to just kind of go off of something that John said a second ago, just about the, you know, those 59 people actually, you know, that last, last Sunday morning, that, that was kind of an interesting and sobering way to think about it. Um, those people, you know, just last Sunday morning, were getting ready for, uh, you know, this concert, this event that they were going to, everybody's excited and uh, all of that. And, you know, who would have ever dreamed that that night, you know, their lives would be, be taken from them through this murderous act. But, but the point is, obviously, that uh, life is brief and we never know um, when we might suddenly be ushered into eternity. And that's why there is an urgency for the gospel to go out, because we know that the gospel is that that's the only message that addresses the eternal situation and of course scripturally we know that there's there's an eternity for everybody for some people there's an eternity with god in heaven and for others there's an eternity without god and it all really depends on what you do with jesus christ during your lifetime and so the church has been established uh, for the primary purpose. We're in the world for the primary purpose of getting the gospel out into the world. And as we study through this book of Acts, now that we've sort of come through the preliminary uh, foundational things here in the first chapter and a half, now we're going to see from this point forward, it is just uh, pretty much, it's just a um, an outline of the mission of getting the gospel to the world. And what we see here, remember, it's the day of Pentecost that we're reading about. These events are all happening on the day of Pentecost. And we talked a little bit about Pentecost last time. But let me remind you that Pentecost uh, was the feast that celebrated the beginning of the harvest. And so, of course, it had relevance for uh, for the nation of Israel, each year they would, they would celebrate God's faithfulness and the harvest that was to come. But it was not just a celebration of the past or, or present situation, but it was a, a prophecy about the age of harvest that would come about when the Holy Spirit was sent down into the world. It's interesting, if you look back in Leviticus 23, at the description of the Feast of Pentecost there, there are two things that are interesting. Uh, one is um, the priest were to, to um, bake these loaves and then they were to present them before the Lord, but they were to be baked with leaven. And the interesting thing about that is most of the time, all of the offerings are to be without leaven because leaven in the Old Testament was sort of a picture of sin. But yet, at, at Pentecost, the loaves are, it's, you know, they are specifically told to bake them with leaven. 
and there are two loaves rather than one. And the prophetic picture is that God was going to do a harvest among not just the Jews, but among the Gentiles also, therefore the two loaves. And the leaven symbolizes the fact that the message was going to go out to sinners. And so that's really what the gospel is. It's the message to all the world. Jew, Gentile, doesn't make any difference. It's a message to all the world. All sinners uh, have an invitation to come and to have their sin forgiven and to receive eternal life through Christ. So that was the prophetic uh, message of Pentecost. And so we see on this particular day, this Pentecost is where now the prophetic aspect of it is being beginning to be fulfilled. And so on that day, as we read there in the passage, 3,000 souls were added to the church. So it's like on that one day, it was kind of uh, just a snapshot picture of what the age is to be like. We live in the age of harvest. We live in the age of, of reaping in the harvest uh, of eternal life. And so, like I said, the church, you can, you can look at many different facets of the, the life of the church and the purpose of the church. But I think, you know, as you read through the scriptures and especially the book of Acts, you find that the, one of the primary purposes of the church is to get the gospel out to people. And that's what Peter does on this day, because the harvest, it, uh, it is reaped through the gospel. That is the, the means through which the harvest is reaped. So remember, it was on that day, the spirit was poured out, uh, the, um, the sound of a rushing mighty wind, uh, the people speaking in languages that they didn't know, praising God. This draws the uh, attention of the crowd. They're wondering what's happening. Peter tells them, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. But then right from there, he, he launches into a gospel message. And so what we want to look at today is we really want to just break down the gospel message that Peter preached that day. And we want to do that because it gives us uh, sort of an outline ourselves of, of how we go about sharing the gospel with people. Now, you know, I'm saying, when I say preach the gospel, I think sometimes in the mind of a person that just looks like, you know, something like somebody standing up on a platform behind a pulpit to a congregation or to a crowd preaching the gospel. Uh, and that is that, but it's, it's not just that. It's individual people sharing the gospel with others. It's, it's you and it's me uh, in the context of daily life, the, or, you know, whether it be at work or in our times of leisure or whatever. It's just those opportunities that we would have to speak to people about Christ. And so that's how we want to look at it today. And so Peter here in um, verse 22, where we pick up, he is addressing now the crowd, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, 
which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So the first thing that Peter starts with is talking about Jesus, the, the person of Jesus. And of course, that's what we have to always keep in mind. That's really what the gospel is about. It's about Jesus. And I say that because it's easy, especially in, you know, especially in the days that we're living in, it's easy to, to get our focus off of Jesus and onto so many other things. And sometimes we find that um, the, the message that the church seems to be communicating into the culture is, is not necessarily a message that's focused on Jesus, but sometimes it's focused on, the other, on other things. Uh, sometimes it's focused on politics. And of course, there are many people in this country today uh, who think of the church and they think of Christians and then they immediately think of it in a political context. Now, there's a reason for that. The reason is because Christians have sort of sometimes we've framed our message in a political context. And that is not what we are to do. We are to have our focus on Jesus. Sometimes we uh, have, I don't think it's intentional necessarily, but we just end up framing our message in a moralistic context. In other words, we're talking about the evils in society. We're talking about how bad this thing is and how horrible it is that that group of people is living this way and all of that. And, and again, that's not, the message. The message is Jesus. And Peter keeps the focus where it needs to be. He presents Christ to them, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And that's what we need to do too. Do you know most people don't know really much at all about Jesus? They know his name. They understand that Christians are connected to him. But how many people really know that Jesus is unique in all of history, that there's no one like him? There's never, there was never anybody like him before. There's never been anyone like him since. How many people know that Jesus, as Peter says here, that he was a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him? I mean, do people really know that Jesus healed the sick he cleansed the lepers, he raised the dead, that he multiplied loaves and fish, that he walked on water, that he calmed the wind and the waves. I mean, do people really know that? We know that because we study the Bible. But most people don't know that. And so when we are talking to people, we wanna talk about Jesus and we want to tell them why Jesus is unique, why there's no one like him and why he is the one and only person that really qualifies to be the savior of the world. And so, of course, if we're gonna tell people that, we have to know that ourselves, right? We have to know who he is. We have to know those things. We have to know his, uh, his miracles and, uh, of course, his teaching and those things. But that's the message that we want to present. So Peter speaks of his life and miracles, but then he goes on and he says concerning Christ that he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God and that they had taken by wicked, lawless hands and they had crucified and put him to death. 
So Peter brings them right face to face with the death of Christ. But notice this also, that he says that Christ's death was according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And again, it was God's plan for Jesus to come into the world. And again, people don't know that today. This is a plan that has been being worked out from the beginning of time. You know, sometimes I will hear people uh, talk about Jesus in a public setting, and they never give a background to who Jesus is. I've heard people say, uh, you know, publicly, maybe on on a talk show or something like that. Uh, They say, well, you know, Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. Well, Well, that's true. And I agree. And Jesus did say that. But let's back it up a little bit. Anybody could say I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? Anybody could say that. But why did Jesus say that? Or, or why, you know, why should we take the words of this man, Jesus, seriously? And I like to remind people that, you know, the Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life is not just some guy that appeared in history making this claim. This is a person whose coming into history was predicted centuries earlier. And I think sometimes it's even helpful to take people back to the very beginning. Take them all the way back to, well, let's, let's go back to where it started. God created the world. He created men and women in his image and likeness. He created us in a relationship with himself, but then something happened. That relationship was broken through sin. And God, not wanting to destroy man, but wanting to save man, promised to send a savior into the world. And Jesus, who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he's that savior that God promised to send into the world. So, Again, sometimes if, if we're just making claims without a context, people still don't really know what we're talking about. So Peter is talking about the predetermined purpose of God was for Jesus to come and to give his life. And so, of course, we talk about the death of Christ and how his death was like his life was unique. There's no one that died a death like Jesus, not because he died on a cross. Lots of people died on a cross. But Jesus died as a sacrifice on the cross. He died as a substitute in our place. He died so we would not have to die. His death is a substitutionary death. And so those are things that as we talk to people about Jesus, we, we need to be communicating to them that the death of Christ on the cross was his sacrifice on our behalf so that our sins could be forgiven. And then, of course, the resurrection. Because the resurrection, without a resurrection, the things Jesus claimed and even his death on the cross um, you, you couldn't necessarily really put stock in that if it were not for the resurrection. So the resurrection is the proof that the things that Jesus said and uh, did and, and promised to accomplish, the resurrection affirms that those, those things really did happen. And so there's plenty of evidence for the resurrection. Are we able to say to people that, you know, Jesus rose from the dead? Well, how do you know he rose from the dead? Well, we know because there's historical evidence for it. How many of you saw the film, uh, The Case for Christ? Came out recently, Lee Strobel's life story. Great, great film, great book. Uh, Lee wrote the book, The Case for Christ in the end. But, you know, here's a guy who's 
not a Christian. He's actually hostile to Christianity. He's an atheistic journalist for the Chicago Tribune. His wife becomes a Christian. He thinks she's gone nuts. And he's like, you know, this whole resurrection thing, I got I to gotta prove that this, I got to disprove the resurrection. This, this didn't happen. But then as he goes deeper and deeper into an investigation, what does he find? He finds that it's, it's an irrefutable fact. And so in the end, he has to bow his knee to Jesus as the resurrected Lord. But you see, he did that partially because people challenged him to really seek out the, the historical evidence for the resurrection. And so when we talk to people, again, we're talking to them about these historical facts that, that, that we can back up and support when we're talking about things like the resurrection. But we, of course, have to be familiar with them ourselves if we're going to communicate them to other people. And it was never intended, God never intended that that, that, that uh, responsibility just be placed on the shoulders of the, you know, the so-called, you know, the church leaders or however you want to refer to the, you know, the pastors or the elders or whatever. A lot of times people just think, well, you know, that's the pastor's job to tell people those things. I'm just a Christian. I don't really know those things, nor do I see a need to know them. No, we all need to know them because it's really all of our task to do that. But then I want you to see this. Peter, what he does here, now he's, his audience is a, is a Jewish audience. And so what he does is he states these things about Jesus, but then he reminds them that their own scriptures support his claims. That these things that happened with Jesus happened in fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. You know, when I was a, a relatively young Christian, I was really fascinated with this, this um, just this whole thing of the, uh, the prophetic aspect of the, the coming of Jesus, that his coming into the world was foretold in advance. That just really uh, caught my interest as, as a young Christian. And I used to go back and just look at those passages that predicted the coming of Christ and try to memorize them. I wanted to commit them to memory because I wanted to be able to tell people that, listen, Jesus coming into the world and dying for our sins, did you know that the prophets predicted that hundreds of years before it ever happened? That's a powerful uh, argument there that, 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 you know, 500 years before, 700 years before, 1,000 years before it happened, the prophets said that these things would happen, and Jesus came, and he did exactly what they said he would do. So, so that's a, a powerful testimony in and of itself, and Peter calls upon prophecy, fulfilled prophecy, to bolster his presentation of the gospel, and we should do the same thing. You know, we, prophecy is, whether it's prophecy of the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ, you know, it's a powerful tool to be able to talk to people and let them know that, you know, the Bible in advance told us that, you know, these things would happen. 
some of you know, and we mentioned it earlier, that we had this uh, Epicenter conference this weekend. And this was a conference where we didn't talk so much about the prophecies of the second coming, which the Epicenter conferences have normally been about, but we talked more about what God is doing in the land of Israel today. And we had three uh, Jewish pastors, Messianic believers in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, we had three pastors, um, and then we had three uh, Arab-Palestinian pastors. And they were both sharing their stories about what God is doing among the Jews and among the Arabs. But in the course of talking about this, uh, Joel Rosenberg was telling us a story. It's really kind of a humorous story where they were, Joe just re, Joel just recently uh, immigrated to Israel, became an Israeli citizen. And so, you know, being an American, they wanted to celebrate Christmas. But they noticed that not only did the Jewish population in general not really think about Christmas, but even the Messianic Jews didn't think much about Christmas. It's kind of more of a tradition that developed in the church. But they really, you know, they have four sons. Their kids are like, hey, when are we getting the Christmas tree? You know, and <laughs> you know, what's going on here? And, and so Joel was feeling like, gee, I don't know. I don't want to be offending my neighbors. He lives in a Jewish community. So anyway, he went to his friend Erez, who's a believer, and said, hey, this is what I'm thinking. You know, should we celebrate Christmas? Shouldn't we? What do you think? And uh, after they talked about it, they came up with the idea, well, let's have a Christmas party. And we can just invite local people over. And, but Eris told him, he said, you know, believe it or not, at this time right now, it's never been like this before, as far as he could remember in the land. But right now, people are kind of interested in stuff like that. There, there's a you know, wider exposure to different cultures and things that go on. So Jewish people are sort of like, well, what is this Christmas thing? So they decided to have a Christmas party. And when the invitations began to go out, they realized that, wow, a lot of people wanted to come. So they ended up having to have two Christmas parties instead of just one. But he was telling us that during the Christmas party, part of, you know, they played games and they did all the traditional stuff and introduced them to all the different cultural things that happened with the Christmas party. But what they decided to do, because they obviously wanted to interject Jesus into the story, they decided that they would read from the prophets, the, those Old Testament prophecies that spoke about what we call Christmas, the birth of Christ. So at a certain point, they read Isaiah 9-6. Somebody opened up the, the Hebrew scriptures and read Isaiah 9-6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. So they read that. A little bit later on in the evening, they had another scripture reading. They read uh, Micah chapter five. But you, Bethlehem, though you're little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth is from eternity. They read that. And then later on in the evening, they read from Matthew, where Matthew quotes both Isaiah and Micah. And so during the evening, this one man, as he's hearing this, this thing, uh, you know, this, this prophecy about Bethlehem, he says, oh, wait, 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 what, what, are you, what, are you, what are you saying here? Are you, are you saying that, that that reference to Bethlehem, you're not saying that that's in the Hebrew Bible. Surely that's not in the Hebrew Bible. They said, no, no, it, it really is in the Hebrew Bible. He says, oh, no, I've never heard that before. I went to school. We learned the Hebrew Bible. We never heard anything like that. 
So they said, well, look, here's the Hebrew Bible. Here's Micah. Here's chapter five. Here's what it says. He reads it. But you, Bethlehem, the, you know, the one's going to come out of you. He's like, what? The, the, is, this, is this saying the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem? Well, it seems like it's saying that. Yes. He says, well, how come nobody ever told me this? And they'd say, well, I don't know. He says, and then he said this, he goes, do, do the rabbis know this? <laughs> they might, but they don't want you to know it. And then he said, finally, he said to Joel, he looks at me, he goes, you need to go to the secretary of education. I went to school here. They taught me the Bible. They never told me this. You need to go tell them that they need to tell every student that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. Joel said, well, I, I don't think that's my calling, but you know, we'll pray that that happens. But point being that it was that prophecy that really spoke to him. And he realized, of course, he's not dumb. He knows that Christians believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He, he knows that much. But now he's reading Micah, their prophet. He's saying that that's where the Messiah is going to come from. So he's got a lot to think about, right? And see, that's what happens with prophecy. And so for us, as we are commissioned as reapers in this harvest to go forth, we are called to preach Jesus, to keep the main thing, the main thing. Let's tell people about why Jesus is unique. Let's talk to people about his unique death and what that means to us. Let's know uh, about the fact of his resurrection, that the scriptures foretold it, that the eyewitnesses testified concerning it, that millions of lives from then till now have been radically transformed because they put their faith and trust in a resurrected Messiah. And let's be able to uh, refer back to those prophetic scriptures. You see, these are all of the ways that we can communicate the message. Now, Peter, in, uh, as we go on here at the end, in verse 36, as he's kind of bringing the message home to them finally, I want you to see this. And it's the certainty of the message. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And this is what I want us to see here. Peter is on the offensive. He's not on the defensive. And I say that because, you know, today, it seems like so often as Christians, we are on the defensive. There's, there's a lot coming against the, the truth of the scriptures today, isn't there? There's all different kinds of, you know, there's, of course, there's the atheism and there's the, that loud voice screaming, uh, the uh, God delusion and all of that kind of stuff. And then there's, there's the, the Islamic voice that is, is also shouting. And there's then, you know, this group that wants to uh, reinterpret, um, you know, life itself and the, the meaning of life and so forth. And they're pushing back. And, and, and a lot of times, I think we find ourselves sort of backpedaling and we're, we're being on the defensive. The truth is, we need to be on the offensive. Now, that doesn't mean we should go out and try to offend people, but it means we're, we're no, we're going to take the, we're going to take the message to them. 
And we're going to have, what Peter has here is he has absolute confidence in the truth of his message. He says, let, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Christ. In other words, Peter is just absolutely confident that this is the truth. And we ought to have that kind of confidence because it is the truth. And if we don't have that confidence, we need to bolster ourselves up in our faith. But you know, I was thinking about this um, statement that Paul made in his first letter to the Corinthians. That's very, the, the idea is kind of similar to this, where in 1 Corinthians chapter one, Paul is talking about Christ crucified. And this is what he says. He says, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are called and those who are being saved, it is the power of God to salvation. And, and it's almost like, again, it's like Paul is taking uh, the, the offensive here. He recognizes, yes, to some people, it's, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And then to some other people, it's foolishness. But then there's a whole other group out there. There's a whole world of people out there that are called <coughs> to whom it is the power of God. Now, <coughs> I am personally into apologetics, um, giving a defense for the faith. I don't mind arguing with uh, the people that, you know, it's a stumbling block for them. I don't mind arguing with the people that it's foolishness. But you know what I find sometimes? You can waste all your time and energy arguing with people that really they don't, they want it to be a stumbling block. They want it to be foolish. They don't want to be confused by the facts. They just have made up their mind already. And you know, that can just be such a colossal waste of time when there's a whole nother group of people out here that just need to hear the message. And so as much as we want to engage with people and give a defense for the faith, and I'm all for that, uh, but we need to be wise enough to recognize that, you know, sometimes we're talking to people, we might as well be talking to a brick wall. And, and we should turn away from that brick wall and go talk to that person over there that actually has an ear to hear. You know, it's interesting when, uh, like, for example, uh, people that I know who are ministering, say, over in places like Europe, uh, what they often find is that the, the, the people the European people are oftentimes very disinterested in their message and very argumentative and hardened. But then they find that the immigrant people that live right among them are the ones that are very open. But then they think, well, you know, I'm, I'm here in this nation. Uh, let, I'll just use France as an example. It's not because... I'm thinking of anything specifically about France, but you know, the idea is, well, you know, I'm here to reach French people. I'm not here to reach these other immigrant people. Well, do you think God really says, no, 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 no. We don't talk to them. They're not French. Let's just keep with the French here. No, God wants us to share the gospel with everybody. And guess what? Sharing the gospel with the people that are open is really a much more enjoyable uh, endeavor than sharing the gospel with people that aren't open. And I even had this experience when I lived in London because many of the, the local English were, uh, you know, 
hey, we're a Christian nation already. Don't tell us, you know, you're an American. We had Christianity way before you did. Uh, we don't need you to be here and we don't care about your message. But then the Pakistani or the African person, they were like, I've never heard this before. Can, can you tell me more? So we want to get the word out to the called. So again, it, I'm not saying we don't contend for the faith with those who uh, Christ is a stumbling block to or foolishness to, but we just recognize that there's a point where there, there's a lot of other people out there. So you might have been thinking about certain people that you want to reach out to, but you find that they're not really open, but there's other people that are open. Reach out to them. Speak to them. Share with them. Now, as I'm saying, and as I want to kind of conclude here, Pentecost signaled the beginning of the harvest. And so the age that we're living in is the age of harvest. And what began on that day and resulted in 3,000 people responding and then a little while later, as we go a little bit further in the story, we find that there were 5,000, so more were being added. This is, this is the mark of the age. It's, it's an age of harvest. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into the place of <clears throat> thinking that, well, the harvest will come later. You know, it's not right. Uh, the time isn't ready. You know, that, that's up to the Lord. Jesus said the fields are, are, are white for harvest. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. The problem is not with the harvest. The problem is with the laborers. But do we understand as God's people that we are living in the age of the harvest? And guess what? We are the reapers. We are the reapers. So... If we expect to see a harvest, we must also expect that God is going to use us as the reapers. You know, in John chapter four, where Jesus says the fields are, are white, you know, he says, do, you, do not say there are four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say, look up, lift up your heads. Right now, the fields are white for harvest. And then he says to them there, he says, I'm, I'm sending you to reap what you have not sown. Others have labored and you enter into their labors. Now, when we, I want us to think about ourselves here for a minute as reapers. So reapers are the ones who come at the time when the harvest is ripened and it's ready to be reaped. But let's also remember that there's a process that takes place. And so in this process, we can find ourselves at different places in the process at times. And, and I'm saying this because sometimes we get discouraged because we think, well, you know, I went and I shared my faith with my neighbor or I shared with somebody at work and basically they haven't responded. They haven't come to the Lord. And so you feel like, a failure maybe, and you feel like, well, you know, this is kind of a waste of time. Nothing's happening. But know this, there's a process. There's the process of, well, first of all, there's the tilling of the ground. The ground has to be prepared. The Holy Spirit is 
largely responsible for that, but sometimes the Holy Spirit uses us to start, you know, maybe turning up the soil a bit. But then there's the planting of the seed. And then after the planting of the seed, of course, there's the watering of the seed. And then eventually there comes the harvesting. When we used to do street outreach when I lived in London and I would take a team out every Sunday after church, um, I noticed, you know, there was a point where people were getting discouraged because we were out there doing this, you know, sharing the gospel, uh, doing one-on-one conversations and preaching. And yet not a whole lot of people were giving their lives to the Lord. And the people were getting discouraged. And I remember sitting down with our group one day and saying, listen, don't worry about that. Maybe we're not out here to put the sickle to the the stock and to harvest it. Maybe we're out here watering it. Maybe in some cases we're out here planting it. Maybe in some cases we're just tilling up the ground. But just know this, there's a process and the Holy Spirit is the one who will, you know, he will determine if we're tilling the ground, planting the seed, watering the seed, or putting the sickle to the harvest. That's, that's, the, that's the Lord's work. We just are there as workers in that field. So I think a good way to look at it is to think, you know, um, as I walk out the door each and every day, I'm going out to the harvest field. And Lord, maybe today I'm going to stir up some soil. Maybe I'm going to throw out a seed. Maybe I'm going to water some seed. Maybe I'll even get to reap. But going out with that consciousness. In the conversation yesterday with uh, one of the pastors, he said to us, and he was a Jewish guy, he said this, and it was very powerful. And both the Jews and the Arab guys, they talked about the tremendous opposition that they face. You know, as we read through the book of Acts and we see this kind of opposition that came against the the apostles and the gospel going out, you know, they live with that every day. They have a government that's against them. They have established religion that's against them. They have the secular society that's against them. And, but, but what one of them said, he put it like this, he said, he said, this is what we live for. We live, we get up every day with the hope that today we will be able to see someone from among our people, he's speaking as a Jew, someone from among our people put their faith in Yeshua as the Messiah. That's what we live for. And, you know, as he said that, I'm thinking, man, is that what we're living for? Are we living for, Lord, just use me to bring somebody close to you? Lord, if it's bringing them closer by planting a seed, if it's bringing them closer by watering the seed, if it's bringing them closer by actually just saying a prayer with them to receive you, Lord, whatever the case, are we living with that kind of urgency? That's the urgency we live with. You know, we talk about revival. We pray for revival. We envision a time when all kinds of people will come to know the Lord. But guess what? If we never open our mouths and we never share the gospel, it's highly unlikely that that time's going to come. Because it doesn't just happen through some mystical type of a thing. There's all kinds of interesting myths that have developed around Calvary Chapel over the years. And one of the myths 
that is, is fairly common, and it's even common among some Calvary Chapel pastors these days, is the myth that this great move of the Spirit of God all happened because one day, a guy named Pastor Chuck Smith, he opened the Bible and he began to teach verse by verse through the Bible. And then suddenly thousands of young people came out to hear the Bible taught. That's a myth. That's not how it happened. What happened is God poured out his spirit and people started sharing the gospel with each other. People got saved and they were so excited about what God had done for them, they went and told their friends. And then Pastor Chuck was teaching the Bible. And so they brought their friends and they started getting grounded in their faith as they heard the Bible taught, but they kept going out and getting and bringing in more people. You know, it's interesting as time has gone on and back in those days, um, you know, that back in the days of the early music and all of the stuff that some of you knew, participated in, some of you have heard about it. It's very interesting. When you look back in those days, the, m most of the music that was being produced back in those days was, was really sort of, um, it was gospel music in the truest sense. It was a message. It was a music with a message. It was essentially communicating to that generation what Christ had done in the lives of these musicians. And they were using that as a as a means of reaching out and, and calling others to come to Christ. So the music was largely evangelistic. It was largely gospel preaching through music. You know, it's interesting because today in the church, so much of the music focuses on worship. Now, obviously, worship is good, right? And we are called to worship God, and we're thankful for that. But we're also, you know, that, that's hap what happens kind of when we're together. But there's also obviously the place for music or, or whatever other means God would use for the message to be going out. Because unless the message is preached, people aren't going to get saved. I mean, there's always an exception to the rule. There's some person here you meet that, well, nobody ever preached to them or anything. They just, the Lord kind of appeared to them and they knew and they got saved. Great, that is an amazing story. But you know, most stories aren't like that one. Most stories are, well, you know, I was at work and I had this, you know, guy working next to me and uh, I just noticed, you know, there's something about his life that was different or something about her life that was different. And I began to talk to him and they told me they were Christian. I thought, wow, that's interesting. And then they shared with me and, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. So Peter today on Pentecost, as he's there, they say, what's going on? He doesn't just say, well, you know, this is what Joel told us about. This is the outpouring of the spirit. Isn't it great? Man, the spirit's being poured out. Look at these people. They're speaking in languages that they don't know. And wow, there's the sound of a wind. Man, awesome. Okay, well, we'll see you later. <laughs> no. He said, men of Israel, let me tell you that Jesus of Nazareth. So the point is, again, it's just, we got to open our mouths. We got to talk. We got to speak up. You might say, oh gosh, I'm so afraid to do that. You know, almost everybody's afraid to do it, believe it or not. Almost everybody. Now, I say almost because there's some people that just, that's just their, 
their personality. They're not afraid to say anything to anybody, anytime, under any circumstances. <laughs> and sometimes those are the ones that you're like, hey, could you kind of tone it down a little bit? You're kind of scaring everybody away. <laughs> now, but God uses all kinds of people and all kinds of things, but we have to speak up because we are the ones who are co-laboring with the Lord in this great harvest field. So let's just study Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he accomplished on the cross, that he did indeed rise again from the dead. And let's just open our mouths, pray for the opportunity, and then open our mouths and trust that God's going to take that truth and he's going to plant it in the hearts and minds of people. And that is how ultimately the harvest will come. So Lord, we pray that you would um, just impress upon us, Lord, the, the urgency of the hour. Lord, that we would be men and women who understand that the priority of the church is the evangelization of the world. And Lord, as we have friends and neighbors and coworkers and family and all different kinds of people around us that are still in darkness, Lord, would you give us the wisdom? Would you give us the understanding? And Lord, would you give us the courage, the boldness to speak about you that others might hear and ultimately be saved? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.